Chapter 25 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Kebble Chatterton. Chapter 25 The Cruise of the Defensor de Pedro. In the year 1827, a vessel called the Defensor de Pedro was being fitted out at Buenos Aires for a voyage to the coast of Africa, whence she intended to obtain slaves and then smuggle them across the Atlantic into America. This trade of fetching Negroes from West Africa to America was no new departure. It had been in vogue ever since the 16th century, and our own Hawkins, in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, had, to his discredit, been engaged in the same disgraceful traffic. Even though we are writing in this present instance of the early 19th century, the practice had not been discarded. The South American Portuguese had at that time the privilege of dealing in slaves on a certain part of the African coast, but it was the intention of the captain of the Defensor de Pedro to run farther down so that he might purchase slaves at a much cheaper price. Among the crew which he shipped from Buenos Aires were the very scum of the Latin races, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and others of the very worst character came aboard, and among them was one arch-fiend named Benito de Soto, who had been born in a small village near Coruna in Galicia. He had taken to the sea as his occupation, and so, in the year of which we are speaking, he had found himself in Buenos Aires. The ship and her crew of desperados crossed the Atlantic and duly arrived off the African coast, where a large number of slaves were shipped. In order to complete his cargo, the captain went ashore, leaving the mate in charge of the ship. This mate was a villain of the most pronounced type, a man of reckless and ungovernable temperament. Seeing that in De Soto there was a kindred spirit, he proposed to the latter a plan for seizing the ship and making off with her. De Soto cordially agreed. The suggestion was now put before the rest of the crew, and after going about the matter in a cautious manner, they had so influenced twenty-two of them as to promise to join in the plan. But the other eighteen declined to be won over, in spite of threats and persuasions. The mate began to despair, but de Soto, acting on his own initiative, collected all the arms of the ship together, summoned the conspirators, and handed to each a brace of pistols and a cutlass, having armed himself in a similar manner. He then advanced to the head of the gang, drew his sword, and declared the mate to be the head of the ship and the Confederates' part owners. And when the resisters still held out, he ordered the ship's boat to be hoisted out, and then dramatically pointed to the land and cried, There is the African coast. This is our ship. One or other must be chosen by every man on board within five minutes. Still declining to submit, the eighteen got into the boat one by one. Only one pair of oars had been allowed them, and 
as the ship was now at sea ten miles from the shore, they would in any case have had a hard row. At the time when they left the ship, the weather was calm and fine, but soon afterwards a heavy gale sprang up, and there was the full force of the heavy Atlantic Sea to be encountered, with night coming on, and there can be little doubt that the boat never reached land, but foundered in the terrible seas. The Defensor de Pedro, with her sails well bellied to the wind, rolled and plunged through the dark night. Outside, the gale howled through the rigging, and all the fiends of storm seemed to have been let loose that night. So it was below in the tween decks, where those other fiends, made drunk with too much alcohol, raised a violent uproar. Argument and quarreling for the mastery followed, and de Soto was not long in obtaining the mastery. The mate could not resist, and the jealousy of the former was impossible to be constrained. So, determined to have what he desired, this avaricious de Soto, in one act, made his own position doubly secure. Hitherto he had aided the mate. Now he was going to end all that, and as the mate lay in his drunken sleep, de Soto put a pistol to the man's head and shot away his life. His next step was to conciliate the crew. He pointed out to them that he had done this deed for their benefit, and declared that he was now their leader, and promised them every success, provided they should obey him. And, as a mob always is swayed by the strongest character, the crew hailed him as their captain with acclamation and unanimity. As to the slaves, these poor creatures were confined below under the hatches, and de Soto steered for the West Indies, where he sold them at a good price, reserving one of them, a boy, as his servant. They then proceeded to act the lives of ordinary pirates, plundering many a fine vessel. But, bad as other pirates were, there is little or nothing to choose between the atrocities of this present crew and those others of which the Moslem corsairs already narrated were guilty. De Soto and his associates were devils incarnate, and it is past the wit of man ever to imagine such a gang should have been allowed to mix with human beings. I have no intention of detailing all their abominable doings, but in order to convey some idea of the lengths to which they could go, the following will be found sufficiently indicative. A certain American brig had the misfortune to fall into their hands. From her they took all the valuables they could lay their hands upon, and then they sent all the people below, fastened the hatches, and set the brig on fire. One man, a negro, they had allowed to be accepted. Him they kept on deck, for the villainous pleasure of seeing the man tortured. Having hove to, the pirate ship watched the flames tearing through the brig, bursting up the decks and penetrating everywhere. Now it climbed the rigging, and the monsters laughed with joy to see the poor nigger leaping from rope to rope till he climbed even to the masthead, and presently fell therefrom, exhausted, into the roaring furnace which filled the hold. 
But that was not the one solitary, monstrous act in their piratical exploits, and the following is really a story in itself. Everyone knows of the island called Ascension, which stands lonely in the South Atlantic, some eight or nine degrees below the equator. In the year 1828, a British ship named the Morning Star was homeward bound from Ceylon. That was, of course, many days prior to the opening of the Suez Canal, and in the days of oak and hemp. The Morning Star carried a valuable cargo, as well as some passengers, including a major and his wife, two civilians, and twenty-five invalid soldiers on their way to England. Some of the latter had their wives also with them. On the 21st of February, when near the island of Ascension, the Defensor de Pedro sighted the Morning Star, the two vessels proceeding in opposite directions. As soon as de Soto espied her at daybreak, he summoned all hands and prepared for attack, having altered his course to give chase. At first, he supposed that she was a Frenchman, but one of his crew, named Barbazan, of French nationality, assured him the ship was British. This delighted de Soto, for he guessed there would be the more booty. When the yards had been squared and the pirate ship ran before the wind, the morning star was about six miles away. The Defensor de Pedro was a fast ship, but, as the other had now set a great deal more canvas, the pirate was a long time coming up to her. This made de Soto like a wild animal, pacing the deck, muttering growls and exhibiting the utmost restlessness. The delay was lashing him into a wild orgy of oaths and curses and ill-temper. The crew, however, were in a savage delight at the prospect of being able to capture so rich a vessel as she appeared to be. Barbazan was busy clearing for action, and seeing that the men had breakfast and then were well armed. The captain's black servant came up to ask if he would have his morning cup of chocolate, when de Soto, in his grossly irritable impetuosity, struck the boy violently with his telescope and if any of the crew interrupted him as he paced up and down, there was trouble for that unhappy man. But now the stunsels were set, and the defensor de Pedro was adding to her speed so nicely that she was perceptibly gaining on the morning star. This relieved the great monster of a load of anxiety, so that he went below and feasted heartily on cold beef and chocolate, and then sat down to enjoy his cigar. More and more gained the pursuer on the chase, so a gun was fired with the customary blank cartridge and British colors hoisted. But the Morning Star still held on her way. This infuriated the pirate. Shoot the long gun, he commanded, and give it her point blank. This was done, but the shot fell short, and he leapt from the deck to curse his men for bungling. When nearly abreast of the British ship, de Soto aimed the gun himself and fired again as the pirate ran up Colombian colors. The people on the Morning Star were in a state of terror by now, though her captain did his best to restore confidence. Although one of his men had been wounded, yet he kept a smart press of canvas on the ship 
and was resolved not to strike to a pirate. Unhappily, the weeping women and the nervous passengers prevailed upon him to heave too, for the invalid soldiers could not have made much of a resistance. De Soto was shouting through his speaking trumpet, Lower your boat down this moment, and let your captain come on board with his papers. One of the passengers volunteered to go on board the pirate, but when the villains learnt he was not the captain, they sent him back after ill-using him, threatening that if the captain did not instantly come aboard, they would blow the morning star up. So the captain came off forthwith, bringing with him the second mate, three soldiers, and a sailor boy. De Soto was awaiting them with a cutlass near the mainmast. The mate was sent to the forecastle, and both he and the captain were immediately slain. De Soto then dispatched half a dozen men, including Barbazan, to row off to the Morning Star and put everyone to death. After that, they were to sink her. The six men, each with a brace of pistols, a cutlass, and a long knife, went aboard as told. Picture these blackguards with their Latin features degenerated and their brutal expressions positively thirsting for human blood, longing to deal death or misery right and left. Their garments consisted of a coarse cotton-checkered jacket and trousers, while their heads were covered with red woolen caps, and broad canvas waist belts held their knives and pistols. Strong and vicious, merciless and coarse, they came aboard the Indiaman as the shrieks from the terrified women rent the sea air. As the pirates jumped on deck, they slashed about on either side, swearing and slaying at the same time. Before long there was scarcely a man left in the ship alive, though a mere handful took refuge below, while the long gun on the pirate ship was ready aimed to blow the morning star to splinters if any opposition were shown. When the ghastly work was finished on the deck, the rascals went about their work of pillaging. Money, plate, valuable jewels, nautical instruments, charts, everything that was of any value was taken on deck and sent across to the defensor. Even the clothes from the passengers' backs were torn off. The culprits then, after two hours rummaging, sat down in the cabin and were served with viands and sparkling wine by a reluctant steward. Unhappily, a small piece of broken glass chanced to be found in the wine, so one of the pirates, in a fury, grasped the trembling steward by the throat, holding a pointed knife to his face. For some time they went on drinking, until the loud voice of de Soto recalled them to the ship. They had no time now to kill everyone, as had been their orders, but were content with boring holes in the hull and leaving the surviving people to drown like rats. Darkness came down over the saddened morning star. She presented a sight of the most poignant misery. Her decks were slippery with human blood. Her masts had been sawn off by the miscreants who had but recently left her. Her rigging had been cut away, and her holds and cabins had been pilfered and left in disorder. 
When at last the deathly stillness convinced the imprisoned victims that they were alone, the ladies succeeded in forcing their way out of the cabin where they had been left imprisoned to drown. But down in the hold were the captive men, and the hatches had been secured by heavy balks of timber. The women shouted to them that the pirates had left, and then, with their united efforts, the timber was moved away and the hatches opened. At last they were restored to life. But it was not to be for long, they surmised, as they found the ship had already six feet of water in her. By working hard at the pumps, she was kept afloat. Yet, what was the good when there were no sails or spars, and they must eventually succumb to the fatigue of pumping? With shattered nerves and wounded bodies, they were now to encounter a lingering death. But, by an act of God, the very next day, they fell in with a vessel which picked them up and brought them safely back to England, where the arrival of these survivors created great excitement. But we must now return to follow De Soto and his gang. The Defensor had sailed far into the night before De Soto learned that the people in the Morning Star had not been done to death, but were only drowning. He raged like an infuriated monster robbed of its prey, cursed Barbizon, and threatened his men with death. And even now, he decided to put back and look for the Morning Star. He wanted to make quite sure they were dead, and after cruising about some time, as he could see no trace of her, he concluded that she had already sunk to the depths below. Thus gratified, he headed for Europe, and on the way plundered and sunk a brig, murdering the entire crew, with the exception of one man, whom he brought aboard so that he might pilot them to Coruna, of which the stranger had special expert knowledge. And as soon as they came within near sight of the port, the pirate came up to him as the latter steered, and addressed him thus, "'My friend, is this the harbor of Coruna?' "'Yes,' said the other. De Soto regarded him for a moment. "'Then,' said he, "'you have done your duty well, and I am obliged to you for your services.' And with that he drew his pistol and shot him dead. Then, flinging his still warm body over the ship's side, he took the steering himself and brought his ship into Coruna after her long and wicked voyage. But the story is not yet complete. Hitherto the ungodly have prospered. Now it is their turn to suffer. After de Soto had obtained ship's papers in a false name, after he had made a brief sojourn to sell most of his booty, he set sail again for Cadiz where he hoped to be able to market the remainder of his spoil. It was not to be a long voyage, just down the coast, round Cape St. Vincent, and so to his destination. He carried a fair wind all the way, too, until he was quite within sight of the neighboring coastline. But as night was approaching, and he wanted daylight to go to his anchorage, he hove to till the dawn should return. But during the night, the wind backed to the westward, and before long it was blowing the full force of a gale, making Cadiz a lee shore, and the whole drift of the Atlantic descend in a cruel sea. 
De Soto luffed his ship all he could, so as to clear a point that stretched out from the shore. But all the time he was close-hauled, trying to get to windward. His ship was making a lot of leeway, and he found it impossible to claw off from the land. The weather got from bad to worse, and the night was as black as a nigger's head. To windward, the howling gale, to leeward, the sound of the breakers, and over everything, the impending doom of ship at the mercy of the wind. It was only a question of time now. The end was certain, and the defensor struck the ground in the shallows with a dull, sickening thud. For a moment, she drifted a little nearer to the shore on the top of a succeeding wave, and then down she bumped harder than ever, as her crew momentarily expected her back to be broken in twain. Aloft, there was a miserable flapping of canvas and loose gear. On deck below, the men who had bullied others were now themselves craven cowards. At last, their own destiny in this dark, wild night had come. So it seemed. But by providential indulgence, they were allowed to remain together all night in the wrecked ship, and in the morning they were able to row ashore. No other thought had de Soto now than to sell the wreck to the highest bidder and to purchase another craft to renew their piratical endeavors. As the night and winds had passed, so had their own fears and good resolutions, and every member of the crew was ready to go afloat again with de Soto in a new ship, if they could obtain what they wanted. They therefore proceeded to Cadiz, and presenting themselves to the authorities, Soto pretended that they were poor shipwrecked mariners, that the captain had perished, and that he himself was mate. The yarn was accepted with sympathy. As to the wreck, she was sold for the sum of 350 pounds, or, to be more accurate, the contract had been signed for that amount. But just then, fortunately, the last act of the drama began, and the plot took a new and unexpected turn. There were some inconsistencies in the accounts of the pirates' stories, so the money was not paid, and six of the men were arrested on suspicion. De Soto and one of the crew became alarmed, and fled from Cadiz, arriving at the neutral ground. Six others got right away. The reader, in spite of his natural resentment of de Soto's character, cannot but admire the amazing ingenuity of the fellow, and the consummate ease with which he could always invent some new stratagem to suit his change of fortunes. And now, once more, the pirate had to set his wits to work, he carried with him a letter of credit from Cadiz, and he wished to get into Gibraltar in order to obtain money. His companion decided not to attempt such a risky proposition, and so escaped the fate which was de Soto's. By means of a false pass, de Soto obtained admission into the garrison, and then took up his abode in a certain low tavern, where he remained a few weeks, pretending to the innkeeper that he had come to Gibraltar on his way to Cadiz from Malaga, and was waiting for a friend. 
He dressed expensively and seemed quite happy. But after a while, he was arrested and brought to court. There was plenty of evidence against him, and the pocketbook which had belonged to the captain of the Morning Star, together with certain other articles taken from that ship, were proved to have been found in De Soto's room in the tavern. Furthermore, that black boy whom he had retained from another ship, as narrated, and had been cruelly treated by De Soto, now came forward as a witness, and thus the chain of evidence was gradually completed to convict the lawless tyrant. The governor passed the sentence of death, and right up till the day of the execution, the culprit still protested his innocence. But at length, he was at the last moved to repentance, and if there is much to say against the man, there is to be added that in his final hour he showed amazing courage and played the man, even assisting his executioners in adjusting the halter. In the life of such a man as de Soto, there is little that can rouse one to enthusiasm, the romance of the days of piracy becomes clouded over by the horrible cruelties and unmerciful slaughter which accompanied the robberies by sea. Stripped of all its excitement and the glamour of brave deeds, such a story as that of this Dago is just one long account of avarice and its attainment. Neither divine nor human laws, neither loyalty to his superior officers, nor respect for his fellow men, nothing did de Soto allow to stand in his way to fulfill his ambition. He plotted and schemed, he murdered and he pillaged, he fabricated falsehoods and he collected fabulous wealth. But when the net benefit to himself is reckoned up, the reader may naturally ask the question, Cui bono? Whom did it benefit? Certainly not himself, and certainly not his crew. It provided a life of excitement and debauchery. It caused misery and suffering to some, and death to others. That, in a word, was the grand total of a wasted life. The pity of it is that all this wild energy, this daring, this ingenuity, this brilliant seamanship and fighting capability, might not have been used to some better and more lasting purpose. End of chapter 25 Recording by Linda Johnson